You ever gotten um, a misconception about something or maybe just a false belief? Maybe you got some bad information at some point and it's kind of clouded your decisions from then on. Um, our kids right now are in an age where they believe their friends more than us, um, which is a really a great thing when they're nine and seven years old. Um, so they come home oftentimes with very bad information that they swear is right. Like Bigfoot actually exists. I'm so, I mean, maybe, but not probably not, right? That's probably the least of them. But they, you know, they're just at this age where their friends are more right than anything going on in life. And I think about that. And I think how ridiculous some of the things they believe and how much they will fight with us about it. Um, even though it's like, here's an actual fact. It's like, no feelings are fine. Um, but I realize in my own life, this has happened. And I don't consider myself to be a gullible person, but I am a trusting person. And so early on in life, I was probably five or six years old. And one of the things that we did as a family is we camped a lot. Um, that was what well, we could afford one, but we also loved to be outdoors. And my dad was younger at the time. He was, uh, I, I, I can't even imagine. Um, he was 26, 27, about the age when we were starting the camp. So he still had a lot of friends that would go out with us. He was a teacher. So one of his close teacher friends, was Mr. Andrews, and Mr. Andrews would go camping with us. And Mr. Andrews is what we like to call a practical joker, um, which is a really fun thing for a five-year-old. So at night, you know, you're already a little bit scared of camping, right? You're in a tent, you're not quite sure of all the sounds out there, but Mr. Andrews had convinced me that armadillos wanted to come attack me. That armadillos wanted to crawl in through the bottom of the tent, and what they really liked to do was bite ankles. <laughs> but there was a solution. All you had to do was wrap a pair of washcloths around your ankles at night, preferably wet, and that would keep the armadillos away from you. So starting at the age of five, until I'd say a good, probably four years until I was nine years old, at night I would wrap my ankles in washcloths to keep the armadillos away from me at night. Now this is only slightly awkward when you're a Boy Scout and all the other older boys are looking at you asking what you're doing. You're like, trust me, I've got this. And you would think maybe that would like let go away after a while, but then when you get to your high school graduation, and what do you get from Mr. Andrews for your high school graduation gift? That you guessed it, orange and blue washcloths to take with me to college. College graduation, yet again, monogrammed washcloths for my new home. Wedding present, 10 years later, you got it, still washcloths. <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Um, but we often get misconceptions, right? We often get bad information that we base a lot of things on or confusion uh, or, or even sometimes just plain lies about things. Um, it can be about the news, right? We're kind of in a post-fact society. A lot of times you just sort of base it on whatever we think is true. And you see that people defending a lot of things just based on whatever we want it to be. Like I said, my kids will just believe what their friends say. It's great. Maybe it's uh, whether, maybe it's people, right? We can get a misconception about someone. Maybe you make a judgment call about someone the first time you meet them and you just realize how incredibly wrong you were about them. Uh, what you took as something else was actually just shyness. They're actually not that mean. They're really great. Or whatever these things are, we get misconceptions a lot of times. And I think these misconceptions can lead us to a couple of different things. One, it can lead us to not want to talk about something, right? Because you, you don't feel like you actually know or you want to be private about it. Like I think with the, the washcloths, I didn't want to ask my friends about it because I didn't want to find out that Mr. Andrews was a liar. Oh, I also didn't want to find out that I was wrong, right? So you might just get kind of quiet about it. Or, or, or maybe that you can become so focused on it because that's, you've got to defend it with everything. Like maybe there's something you believe to be true because you heard it from someone and you're just going to fight. Like that's what our kids do. I mean, they will, nope. Nope, uh, it's about 50 no's before they, we, we just quit. Um, but, uh, but we can get so focused on it that you just will, will argue it to death and you become just so focused on it. And, and I think one of the areas where I see that happen a lot in the church is around the ideas of the Holy Spirit. Like, who is the Holy Spirit? 
Like, what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? What does he do? There's a lot of misconceptions around that. And that can lead us to either, one, not talk about him at all. We can just go ahead and gloss over it. We can go through all these stories where he shows up and just sort of like put it aside because it's uncomfortable. So maybe we'll just ignore it and kind of talk about what people did and leave that to the side. Or, or on the other end of the spectrum, you can just become so focused on it that that's the only thing you can think about. You become so focused on this one aspect of the Trinity that everything else sort of goes to the side. And in the church world, in this body of Christ where we're supposed to be united together, it can also become a divisive thing. It can be a topic that can divide us that we can't even talk about or agree on and split us apart. Yet, yet the spirit is one of unity. He's referred to as a unifier, as bringing people together, of, of causing the body of Christ to come together. The, the book of Acts, where we've been seated for the last few weeks and where we will continue to be for the next few weeks, it's sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. It's the story of the early church. It's the story of these early followers, the leaders of the church and what they did. But a lot of times it's also called the acts of the Holy Spirit because the book is saturated in the Holy Spirit showing up and doing these amazing things through his followers. So I think, I think it would be helpful today to take a quick survey of the Holy Spirit so we can understand acts more fully, especially as we get into the passage today. And, and I think to get a good starting point, it'd be helpful to look at some of the descriptions of the Holy Spirit so we can have a kind of a proper frame and context to view him through. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit while he's on earth, while he's with his followers. He, he talks about him in John chapter 14, verse 26. He says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I love this description. Jesus is with his followers. He knows he's not gonna be around forever. He says, listen, you don't have to worry about it. There's gonna be someone that's gonna come alongside. Part of the Trinity, the God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, we're all in one. He's gonna send the Holy Spirit. He's gonna remind you of my teachings. He's gonna plant them firmly in your heart. He's gonna remind you of everything I've said to you. It's going to be alive in you as the Holy Spirit is in you. It's gonna be grounded in you. I love that idea that Jesus' teachings are grounded in us through the Holy Spirit and that the promises he had for his early followers. He goes on in Ephesians chapter five, verses 15 through 20, as Paul writes to the church there, he says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does the Spirit do? What is the description of him here? It says, with our words, the ways we speak to one another in our singing, that we would make music from our heart, that we would give thanks to God in the name of Jesus, that these were all powerful marks of the Spirit being alive. Again, it sounds very similar to Jesus on earth, right? All the things that Jesus modeled out, again, the Spirit is putting that into our lives. The Spirit of Jesus alive in us allows us to live out his hope for us. And then one of the most famous passages about the spirit, about the effects, the power, the, the outflowing of the spirit are the gifts of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, the fruit of the spirit. Something we did a sermon series on a couple of years ago and spent a lot of time on. It's a list. And I think it's a list that as followers of Jesus, that they are things that we desperately want. Even if we're not followers of him, I think these are things that we want in our life that are in this list. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
These are the marks of the spirit of the spirit of Jesus being alive in us. These are the outflows of that. And I don't think anybody, no matter where you fit in the whole spectrum, whether you believe in Jesus, no matter where you're at, if you hear that list, these are things everybody wants, right? There's nothing in this list that we want to argue about because we want to have love and joy and peace in a world that's filled with strife and a world that's so divided. These are the marks. These are things that we all want. And the promise of that the spirit of Jesus is alive enough is his teachings in our life that he will produce these things in our life, the fruit, the mark of the Spirit. Uh, a way that has been helpful for me to think about the Holy Spirit in the midst of that is that God has existed throughout time in the highest heights of heaven, the creator of all, all powerful, and he has been there. And Jesus is God with skin on. He comes into the world. He shows us exactly what God would look like living in our world. To live a perfect life in the midst of humanity, God comes in the form of Jesus. And Jesus ascends back into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is there today and yet he gives his spirit for us to be able to stay near to Jesus, to love out his hope for us on his earth, that the spirit has been given to us to stay close, to stay connected, for Jesus to be alive in us, though he has gone to heaven, that he is alive in us, that we are able to look more and to love more like him. Um, it's been interesting. In fact, this week we, we were doing as a staff, we were meeting together with a pastor from Washington, D.C. who had come down to teach us um, how the church can and should look more like God through the celebration of diversity and uniqueness in the ways that we express ourselves in, the, in our cultures and our ethnicities. And, and one of the quotes that he shared about the Holy Spirit as I've been thinking about the Holy Spirit has really stuck with me through the week and I wanted to share it with you. He said, the Spirit paints the image of Jesus in diverse portraits on the human image. The spirit paints the image of Jesus in diverse portraits on the human image. And I love that. I love this idea that the Holy Spirit comes into each and every one of our unique life, our unique story, our unique abilities, our unique giftedness, our unique creativity, every part of it. He doesn't make us more of the same. He celebrates all of our differences and, and wires it uniquely to be used to him and, and paints this image of Jesus on our uniqueness. I love that image of the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to take a look at Acts and see what the Holy Spirit is up to. And what I believe the hope is still for us as the church today. I want to give a little bit of an overview of where we've been in Acts to catch everybody up. Because I know it's not always possible to see and hear all this. And it'll be really helpful as we get into where we are today. We started back in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And in the very beginning of it, Jesus is with his followers. But eight verses in, um, Jesus tells them this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He gives him this incredible vision of what's gonna happen, and then he leaves. And there's this moment where the disciples are just sort of looking up into the heavens, and it could have just ended. It would have been really easy for them to stop right there. They could have built a nice monument. They could have built an incredible church. They could have just stayed in that little image and just kept looking up in heaven and said, like, this is it. This is the best it's ever gonna be. Jesus is gone, but he said he's gonna do these things, and we're just gonna stay here and worship in this place, but they didn't. They didn't. There was something in them that spread them to go forward. They encouraged them to move forward, that that wasn't where their place was. They were to go into all of the ends of the earth. And there's this movement that happens in the early church. They move forward. They start meeting together. They go into Jerusalem. And we started talking about in the beginning of Acts 2, this day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, when he is given to his followers for the first time. The disciples are gathered together in the house. They're in this small group together. And it says a sound like the wind came in. This is the Holy Spirit descended upon them. It's the first thing that they do. What's the first act of the Holy Spirit among these followers? They're able to speak other languages. They're able to communicate with everyone around them. We see the Holy Spirit involved in speaking truth, this truth that Jesus had died, he came back to life, that it matters to those around him. But he also brought unity. 
as he was able to speak all these languages, he started bringing people together. It was a unifying force. Jesus was always bringing people back to him. And people that were around were amazed that these ordinary people could do these extraordinary things. And then we hear that first message from Peter where we started in the series that Jesus came. And then Peter says, and you killed him. And he came back to life. Now that's probably not the sermon we're going to preach here every week, but it was very effective on that first day because 3,000 people came. They felt the weight of what happened, but also the hope that was there. Jesus came back to life. It matters. 3,000 people, the church explodes in this beginning part. There were miraculous words. The spirit was speaking through them. There were miraculous actions as people were hearing the languages and they were coming together. And there was miraculous boldness as they spoke, as they shared, as they gave this message out to the world. And then we see the life of this early church. Kaylee shared with us what the marks of this early church of the spirit alive of Jesus continuing his work. We see them come together in this church of early believers. They were devoted to fellowship and teaching. They broke bread together. They ate meals together. They prayed together. They were together and had everything in common. I love that. And they took care of everyone who had need. They continued to meet together in large groups. They gathered for corporate worship at the temples, but then they got together in their homes in these smaller groups and did life together. And the church kept growing as the world saw that things were different. And then last week, last week we took a moment with Peter. Acts takes this beat and looks at Peter's individual life. We see Peter heal a lame man. He does the miraculous. And then he speaks boldly. He has these miraculous words. He says the miraculous. He shares the word of God boldly to the point that he's brought in to the authorities. And he continues to share this truth. And he continues to share this message with this spirit of boldness, this miraculous courage in the face of adversity. And we see that all of these things were done with the spirit of Jesus in him, that he learned to stay close to Jesus through Jesus' earthly ministry. We saw Peter following him so closely. And every time he stayed close to him, Great things happened as he got away. Things changed. He was able to do these things as he stayed close to him. The spirit, the Holy Spirit that was given to him, kept him close to Jesus and the same hope they had for us. And then today we join the early church. These men and women that are joined together in the early church. Peter comes back and tells them about the trials he's just faced. He tells them about the, the, the authorities were asking these questions. All this happened. And what do they do? I mean, I, I would picture this group is gathered and he comes back and he had just been put on trial. It would have been really easy for them to rally together. And maybe they put out a Facebook post or maybe they went out and started, you know, yelling at people. They could have done a lot of things. They could have gotten together and they could have taken up arms. They could have done a number of things, shouted in protest. But that's not what we see them do. They pray. Peter comes back and he tells them about these things that have happened and they stop and they pray. I found a quote this week that has really seated me in the midst of this. D.L. Moody, one of the famous preachers of our last century said this. He said, I'd rather be able to pray than be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. You think about that. He modeled prayer for them. He modeled this connection with the Father, the same connection he wants for us with the Spirit. He models it out, how to pray. So the early church takes us to heart, and this is what we're going to pick up today in your bulletins, or if you want to follow along in your Bible, we're in Acts chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 23. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And in their prayer, they quote a Psalm of David right here. They say, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They pray. They stop and pray and they recognize God's power. They recognize the sovereignty of God. They had a very deep and rich theological understanding of who God is. This early church understood who God was. They knew their story. They knew of the people of God. They knew that God had pulled them out, that he had rescued them time and time again, that God had been faithful to them. They knew it enough that they could quote the Psalms in their prayer. They knew him. They had this deep, rich understanding. And in their prayer, five of the seven verses of their prayer are recognizing God's power. They spend 70% of their prayer praying to God and just repeating what they know about him, of seating themselves firmly in that God is in control. You are God. You are God. And then they spend two asking him for what they need. And what do they ask? In the midst of this, in this beginning, as we see this church coming together, what do they ask for? They ask for two things. One, to speak your word with great boldness. And then for God to stretch out his hand and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. They ask for boldness to speak. They understand what they can do. As I've read through this prayer and prayed it some this week, there's this very real sense that they understand what they can do. They, they can understand who God is and his power, and they can ask to use their words. They can speak. They can share this good news about Jesus died, he came back to life, and it matters. But they understand that God can only do what God can only do. They ask God to continue to be God and do miracles and healings. They ask for his power to be shared. And I thought about what does that look like practically? What does it look like to practically understand taking on our part and letting God do his part? What, what does it look like to do that in our lives or to even ask for that in prayer? And, and one of the things I kept coming back to is I, I've been involved with students for a long time through Young Life and through uh, student ministries. And one of the things that always comes up in training is trying to teach our volunteers and myself what's practical, what can we do? And, and this follows suit for if you're a teacher, if you work with anybody who's in change, that you maybe you work with people in addiction, maybe you're working with people uh, that you want to teach something to, or even in, in leadership, we can control certain things, right? Uh, we, we can show up. Uh, we, we can... Um, pray for them. We can share with our words. Uh, we can be consistent in how we live and all this. But the thing we can't do with people around us, we can't change how they act. We can't change their decisions. We can't force people to do the things. And in ministry, that's really hard. And especially in student ministry, because all we want, the thing we want so desperately is for students to understand the grace of Jesus and that their identity is so deeply rooted in Jesus's grace that they don't have to perform, that they don't have to earn it, that they are just able to live freely in the grace of Jesus. And they're able to share that with others, that their identity comes from this solid place. We want students to be able to be alive forever, that they have hope forever. And it's really hard because you're so close to them oftentimes and you're there with them. And again, you can translate that to a lot of people in your life, but you can't have them cross that threshold. You can't force them to do anything. And it's not our job to change their hearts. And it's not your job to change the hearts around you. It's not your job to make the decisions for the people in your family. It's God's job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things I was told early on that's helpful because sometimes direct communication to me is helpful. Someone said, guess what, OJ? You're not the Holy Spirit. I'm like, thank you for sharing that with me, right? Uh, and be glad I'm not. Um, that's his job. Only God can do that. I can do the other things. There's parts for us to do, and it's very important. God has given you unique talents, gifts, abilities, time, possessions to use, but there are parts that only he can do. And then it continues on after they've prayed this prayer. In verse 31, something amazing happens. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God boldly. Again, we can get so many of these different conceptions about what the Holy Spirit will do. But over and over again, we keep seeing some of the first things he does as he comes in the believer's life is he helps them share the message. He helps them speak. He brings people together. He gives them boldness in their words. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak the word of God boldly. Well, I mean, even that word boldly, they, they had a boldness about them. They had courage. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus that was implanted in their lives allowed them to speak this word of God. The Spirit allowed them to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, that he came back to life, and it matters. It can actually change your life, and that he will come again someday. Jesus had promised he wouldn't leave them. We've looked at John 14, 26. He promised he would not leave them, but that he would send a spirit to remind them of everything he said so they could share it, so they would have access to it as they needed it. They were given, at the end of the Gospels, we see this great commission that Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in my name. He says, go and tell the whole world. Tell the whole world about me. That is your job. Go share your words and tell them about it. And they were doing it. They had the words. They were speaking boldly. The Spirit allowed them to do it. They had this ministry of their word, but it wasn't just their word. That was a big part of it. Their word was backed up also by their actions. The great commandment says to love your neighbor as yourself, to love the Lord your God. And they did these things as well. Verses 32 through 34, we see their lives transformed. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. It's incredible. Their lives reflected the words that were coming out of their mouth. They were one in heart and mind. They shared everything they had. And with great power, they continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. And it says through that, God's grace was powerfully at work within them. Their deeds and their actions were a mirror of their words. God was at work in them. The Holy Spirit had come upon them and allowed them to speak, but also to live in a very different way that was so attractive to people that were outside, but also so threatening to the structures that were there. Last week, uh, we spoke of Peter. Jeff was sharing with us and in that, that part in Acts 3 about Peter and his story. And the story today mirrors so much of what was happening in Peter's life. Peter's life is shared individually in what's happening. And here we see corporately as they're gathered together what's happening. Peter stayed close to Jesus. The early church stayed close to Jesus. And Jesus promised to give them the spirit to help them stay close. That if we believe in him, that any followers of him at any time, as soon as we believe in him, as soon as we cross that threshold of faith, we're given the Holy Spirit so that Jesus would stay close to us, stay alive in his heart. And it allows us to do what Peter did. And we see it lived out corporately. So last week we talked about Peter, that he was able to do the miraculous, right? Earlier in his life, Peter walked on water. And last week we saw that he healed a lame man, miraculous. He did the miraculous. But the early church did the miraculous too. And when it was a miraculous way of living, they were loving each other well. They were unified. They forgave each other. They shared their things. This is not normal behavior. The world 2,000 years ago is not much different than it is today. And would you say we live in a world that's loving, unified, forgiving, uh, and that that cares for each other well? Uh, Invite me to your world, please. Um, But that's the hope, is that it can look like that. Through him, that we are so wired selfishly to look for ourselves, but that through Jesus, through the spirit alive in us, that we can live that way as well, that we can be united around Christ that we can love all, that we can forgive each other, that we would have unity with one another. 
of living a way that is miraculous. Peter was able to say the miraculous, right? He had this incredible testimony with his words. He spoke with great boldness before the teachers. He was given the words as he needed them to speak and to share the great message. The early church, again, filled with boldness to share words. Us, we're given the same boldness. The Holy Spirit says, I will give you the words you need when you need them. I will give you the boldness and the courage to share them. And the early church was given miraculous courage. We saw Peter was given miraculous courage through the Holy Spirit. And so was the early church. In this face of opposition, they continued to share the word. And I think that's one of the ones that has spoken to me a lot. And probably it speaks to where we are in our lives a lot. I think we tend to live as fearful, right? And whether we think we do or not, I think that's probably the most accurate way of looking at our lives a lot of times. We're not the most trusting people, especially with God. We might, we might say with our lips off, but it often at times doesn't appear in our lives. We cling tightly to things, our possessions, our people, our words, our thoughts, all of these things. Yet the spirit of openness that the early church exhibited was this radical trust that God would provide for them. This, this mark of the spirit in the early church was of this idea of fearlessness. They no longer had fear and anxiety about the future. They trusted God that if they were to give it over to him, if they were to live for him, that he would take care of it. And you see it lived out in their lives. It's lived out in generosity. They trusted that they would have everything that they would need, that they could give things away and that God would take care of them. That they, by taking care of those around them, that their needs would be met as well. Um, I was thinking about this when we were thinking, you know, what does it look like to live generously? I shared a couple of weeks ago when we were having our night of worship, but um, a few of us were in Malawi last month. And one of the just the, the greatest pictures of generosity I've seen over the last few years is um, at this church we've been going to, they do a grain offering. So in Malawi, uh, they, they grow their own corn. That's, that's their food for the year. So they will grow a crop, dry it, and that is their meal for their family for the year. They, they store it, they can turn it into to a flower, they can sell it, but this is their provision of food for the year. And as part of this service once a year, uh, everyone, pretty much everyone in Malawi farms, they bring a portion of their crops to the church to give to those in need. Now, it, it, I, I often find it's one thing to give money, which is still really, really hard to do. But when I think about giving away my kids food, that, that this food that I'm trusting will last me through the year, and I see these men and women walk into the churches beaming with pride of the crop and this trust that God will take care of my needs. That's generosity, to take care of everything. And they lay it down at God's feet and say, you, I trust you with that. I trust that I'm going to have enough food. And I trust that you will take care of those around me. That's just a picture of generosity that I've been carrying with me and that has been challenging me deeply. And the Spirit also gives them the ability to speak courageously, that they will trust that it will be okay. And I think that's one of those things that we also come up against. I think there's often a fear in our speech because if we say what we really believe, uh, people will think we're dumb. I can't believe you believe that. I can't believe you believe in God. How could you be so irrational to believe that there's a God who loves you and cares about you? Or maybe you'll lose a job or a friend or an opportunity by speaking boldly about what we believe wisely, but boldly in the Spirit. It says, I will come alongside you and remove the fear and I will allow you to live this life boldly. This early church shared this testimony and word indeed with great power to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And their testimony was that Jesus was alive and that it mattered and they spoke it and they lived it. They showed it to the world around them. Their testimony had great power in part because their life looked so different from the world around them. They had everything in common. They were unified. They pointed to Jesus with their words and actions. If you remember Jesus' prayer as he's, he's heading towards death, and he gathers together to pray, and he's in his final moments of life. And what does he pray for? What does he sit there as, as blood is coming from his forehead? They say he's praying so hard. He said, God, help them to stay unified. God, if the church will be unified, the world will see and know me. And I picture that. I picture in those moments that he thinks about us and that unity was so important. 
that we were gathered together and they had that. They were exhibiting it and the world was seeing something different. And then they gave generously because they trusted. They were meeting the needs of all that were around. So how are we doing? And how are you doing with all of that? Does your testimony have power? Does your, the words you speak when you tell people around you that you're a follower of Jesus, does, does it have power? Does it show in the way you live your life? Does your life point to an alive Jesus? And I've had to ask this question really hard of myself as I've looked at this. Does your life look different? Uh, one of the reasons I've asked, asked this question a lot is um, oftentimes we don't know how different or how much impact our life has until the end, right? When you go to these memorial services for people and you can see this indelible mark that their life was different and the world around them was different because of the ways they loved faithfully. About three weeks ago, we were gathered in this room for a memorial service for uh, one of our congregants, Laura Madison, that many of you know. And it was quite remarkable to gather together in a room and to have people come up on the stage and share stories that Laura spoke with great boldness to them when they were in high school and in college as Jesus captured her heart. She shared with them in their time that Jesus mattered. And their, their lives were radically different. Almost all of them started teaching those who were in need. Almost all of them have situated themselves in areas of poverty to care for those. I think four of her seven bridesmaids adopted children with special needs. Their lives looked radically different because Jesus had impacted their lives. And as you looked around the room and you saw people nodding, this whole room was filled with people that were deeply impacted by the way she lived, by the way she died by the way she stayed faithful. And she wasn't, she wasn't a miracle worker. I mean, she had her flaws. She's a human. She didn't shoot rainbows out of her hands and fix things, right? She was faithful and her life looked different. She spoke it and she lived it often quietly and often verbally in all of these different ways. And the world looked different around her because of the way she spoke and lived. And I believe, I firmly believe that says God's hope for our church. That our, our, our lives would be filled with words of this testimony, our story of him, that our lives look different and that we would be living with generosity. That this gets lived out in big ways as, as a church corporately, amazing things we get to do, Christmas Eve offerings, massive service projects, all of these things that happen on the macro scale of being a large church together in the city, but also gets articulated really well in smallness and smaller groups in these pockets of people gathered together. It starts with this gospel identity that if we fully understand who we are in Jesus, that we can trust in him, that we can have this radical generosity, this boldness of spirit, that we know we have the Holy Spirit and his spirit alive in us that we can have this radical practice of sharing our lives, our words, our things. The early church shared a common life. They shared their burdens and joys. They shared their time and possessions. And it's the same thing God calls us to as followers of him today to share our life, burdens, joys, time, possessions. This most often gets lived out in our connect groups here in these smaller groups that gather together to care for one another, to share with one another, to live life together. This has been God's hope for us as his people all along back in Deuteronomy 15, back in his earliest days of bringing the people of Israel together. They were a showcase people for the world. He always wanted them to live lives of generosity, to take care of the needs for the world, but the old community failed. They, they didn't deliver on what he wanted. And Jesus creates a new community around him to do this. That's who we are. That's the church. That's why we're looking at the early part of Acts and why we continue to be pushed by this today. We are still his hope for the world to be a generous people that would be light and salt in the world around. And it's very simple. It's very simple, right? Share with one another, be generous, speak with our words, trust him, but it's not easy. It's not easy at all in the world we live in and the complexities of modern life and the ways that we have to trust in the midst of it. Quote I read this week, it says, the type of generosity that God wants to see in us requires not only a relinquishing of possessions, but also a sensitivity towards others. 
We must be involved in people's lives if we are to know when they have a need. A generous person is a relationally involved person. There's a lot to unpack in that. And it made me think, can this happen on Sunday as we gather to worship? Possibly, right? Absolutely, it can happen. You gather together, you share with each other in the lobby, you look out for one another, it can happen. Can it happen better when a few people gather together in intentional groupings to care for well for each other, to learn, serve, and worship, to pour into the word, to pour into each other's lives, to pray for one another, to know their needs absolutely happens better. There's word indeed that the spirit empowers us to have bold teaching, bold words, that these individuals learn that the resurrection of power of Jesus resided in them. It's the same hope for us now. The early church gained a proper perspective on possessions as they pondered the resurrection. It's the same hope for us now. The early church could speak fearlessly because they were secure in the Father's love and it's the same security he wants us to have. And additionally, the early church were recipients of the undeserved favor of God. Guess what? So are we. We live in the most prosperous time in all of human history. We have been blessed richly by God. God delighted in blessing them. He delights in blessing us. But he also wants us to loosen our grip on our material possessions. When God's grace is at work, we see it in the early churches. As his grace was powerfully at work in them, they got generous. The natural outflowing of trusting God was generosity, and it's the same hope he has for us. So my, my encouragement, my challenge, my admonition as we look at this, for you, for us as a church, as Summit Church here in Lake Mary, what, is, what, what do I take from all this? I, I would love to encourage you to get into a small group, into a connect group is what we call them here, that you would have boldness in your words, that you'd be able to share grace with one another, that you would find unity around a common purpose, that there would be miraculous words spoken to you, that life would look different as you live it together, that the Spirit of Christ who is alive in you, has promised the Holy Spirit alive in you, would help you to share your word and live it out generously, but that we'd be able to do it in small groups. There, there is a saying that has gone around, uh, and, and I find it to be quite true, that, that the church is better in circles than in rows. This idea that the church is better in circles as we gather together, as we lock eyes, as we share our lives than in rows. They're both important, right? The early church gathered large, but also gathered small. And it's the same encouragement for us today. So here's the next step. I would ask you to pray. For the next two weeks, pray. Is this the season for me to get into a connect group? Is this what God is doing in my life? Is he, is he asking me to get together with a few people in the share life to learn, serve, worship with one another? And if so... Um, and even if not, I would invite you to come to lunch because there's food and why wouldn't you? So uh, 1230, Sunday, September 15th, we're gonna have a meal, right? And it's just a church meal. We're gonna have lunch afterwards. We're actually have a really fun nacho bar, hang out, do all this stuff. But before, we're gonna give you an opportunity to consider getting into a connect group. It's not like a timeshare sales. You're gonna be fine. It's gonna be very soft and kind, but they will be very clear. Like there are opportunities for groups that are existing. There's new groups happening all the way out of Volusia, down the mainland, all over town. There's new leaders. Uh, and we're gonna go and we really have a season of encouraging people to get and to connect groups. And here's why, because it matters. It matters as we share our lives with each other. It matters because we're gonna have opportunities to serve in big ways. I mean, we're already forming these care communities around foster families and these local schools. As we continue to be this church that shares and as the community knows it, we're gonna be asking all these different things. And the fastest way that happens always is in connect groups. It's always when small groups of people that are already in community say, let's go do this thing together. Let's go paint this thing. Let's go help this thing. Let's go do it. So that's one of the reasons we wanna do this. We can serve and we can mobilize so quick. It's also one of the best ways to invite people in. People might be way more, you have friends that will never step foot in a church, but they'll come to dinner at your house and there's some cool people that are hanging out there that are nice to them. That's pretty radically different than what a lot of people exhibit on a normal day. It's an easy way to invite people in. This isn't for the sake of numbers at a church. It is for the sake of living out the hope of God for his church more fully in our city. So two weeks, let's have lunch together and we'll share a little bit more about what's going on in there. Would you join me together in prayer as we continue on in our worship? God, thank you.
Thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, thank you for the story of the early church that is so steeped in your Holy Spirit being given and coming alive in people and the spirit of Jesus being close to their heart, a spirit that allowed people to share their testimony with great boldness in their words, but also in their lives, that their lives looked so radically different, that they were unified, that they spoke words of encouragement and kindness to one another, that they shared all they had, that they shared meals together, that they worshiped together in large groups and remembered you, that they gathered together in small groups, that they painted an image to the world that was so different and so lovely that people wanted to join in, that the church exploded, that we are sitting here today in part because those early people continued to be faithful to you and met together and shared what they had and the world kept looking in and kept showing up and it happened over and over and over again, God. And we are the recipients of that grace, but also the, the torchbearers for it. God, we are still your church. The Holy Spirit has been given to each and every one of us that are followers of you. Your spirit is alive in us. And as we trust you, as you remove the fear, as you produce the fruit of the spirit in us, generosity happens, unity happens. And it happens better when we're intentional with one another, God. And I pray that you would give us courage and boldness to do that, that we'd share words, that we share our things, God, that you'd help us to pray, whether this is a season for us to gather together with a few people to do life together. God, that you would just point us in the right direction as a church, that all of this would be about being your church in this city and this time and this place in history, that we would make a difference, that we'd be salt and light and hope to a world that desperately needs hope. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.